Hebrews chapter 2. Today we'll cover the first verse. And what we'll do is we'll read this and then we'll go to the Lord in prayer. It says verse 1, For this reason we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away from it. Let's go to the Lord. Almighty Father who is in heaven, we come before you as humbly as we know how, O Lord, with a great need for a Savior, for your Son, Jesus Christ, with a great need for the message of his gospel, for the message of his atoning work upon the cross, Lord, that way uh, that we would not suffer our minds, Lord, to trust in the flesh, but that each day with a growing knowledge, as you would reveal it by your Holy Spirit, that we would come to understand that only Jesus Christ is sufficient. Lord, that in our flesh and according to our nature, we as man would be drawn away from the cross. Lord, we would be taken captive by the desires of our sinful and deceitful hearts. But as we look to your text this morning, O oh God, we ask that by the power of your Spirit and the truths of your Son, Jesus Christ, that you would reveal the truth, the revelation which you have brought only by your Son, the final prophet, the only priest and king who stands this day who reigns from heaven, seated on your right hand. God, we just pray that as your people, you would bless us with the knowledge of who you are and who your son is. And for those this morning, Lord, who would hear your word and have not yet to bend the knee, who have not yet submitted to the lordship of Jesus Christ, we pray that it would be effectual to their hearts. Lord, that for your good pleasure and for your glory and your honor and your praise, for the exaltation of Jesus that you would see fit to save those who have yet to realize the truth of Christ crucified. Lord, if there are unrepentant sinners in our midst this morning, our prayer is that they would hear the gospel. Lord, and it would break them. It would draw them closer to Christ. It would cause them to be born again. Lord, that we may all rejoice and that we may glorify and that we may testify that your word is true and that your word is powerful unto everlasting life. Lord, we pray for those of our congregation who aren't here this morning, who are sick, Lord, and afflicted in many ways. Lord, we pray for your healing hand, but ultimately we pray, we pray that you be glorified in every situation. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. I would like again to read the text. It says, For this reason we must pay closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. This week we find ourselves back in the epistle to the Hebrews, yet we are beginning a new chapter. And as we have spent 14 weeks, maybe a little more, in chapter 1 we've seen the revelation that God has brought forth in Jesus Christ. And this first chapter has been spiritually rich in the supremacy of Christ and in the exclusivity of 
God the Father's revelation to mankind as it is in Him, Jesus Christ, and of course in its exclusivity of salvation in Jesus alone. The simplest summation that I could bring for you from the previous 14 verses and the previous weeks of study would be best described by these words. Christ the Savior, Jesus the Son of God, one with God, being very God Himself, exalted above all creation. That is the highlight of what we've seen in Hebrews chapter 1. And this is no doubt the definition of the gospel that we hold fast to. And with absolute certainty, we would affirm that the gospel of Jesus Christ is as powerful today as it was before the beginning of creation and as powerful as it was in the day of its fulfillment at the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ Himself. He is Lord and He is Savior. And the text is very clear. God the Father is very clear. Jesus is preaching Himself on earth is very clear about who He is and the message that He brings and the life that He brings in His name and in His name alone. But still with such a foundation emphasized in and of Christ, there existed during the time of this epistle... And I would submit to you that there still does today a lack of devotion to Christ. And we're not talking about simply amongst the entire world, and that would be to include the unbelievers, but I'm talking about even amongst professing Christians, there's a lack of devotion to Christ. For many have heard the message of Jesus as Lord and Jesus as Messiah, Jesus as the Christ. And many have understood by way of reason and by preaching that he is in fact superior. If by no means other than the words of chapter 1, we can come to this conclusion that Christ is supreme. But lingering still is an understanding of who Christ is amongst those who proclaim to be his people. There's still a fault. There are still those who are Void of commitment to Christ. There are men, and even spoken of here in this particular epistle, this is the purpose behind it. There are men who knew that this was the Christ and that they would still refuse to serve Him as they should. They still refused to minister to others the gospel of Jesus Christ. They refused to submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. They submit only to the flesh. And in many times they only submitted to those rituals and customs of those who claimed to be descendants of Abraham rather than following the commands of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So there's this lack of commitment. And men knew who Christ was and they still don't serve Him. And today that's a problem still in the church that men and women would come in and profess that Jesus Christ is Lord, yet with their outward appearance every day of the week they refuse to serve Christ. Rather they serve the flesh. This is the importance behind the writing of the epistle to remind people of who Christ is. And certainly we see God's declaration of who Christ is in the first chapter. 
And we ask, how can people refuse to serve Christ? How can they refuse to come to Christ if they know that He is the Son of God? We all know people who have this profession of who Christ is, yet they serve Him not. They pay merely lip service to Jesus. How can this be? How can man come to an understanding that the angels, even as we saw in chapter 1, must worship Christ, yet they themselves remain isolated from the worship of Christ as Lord? How can it be? This sounds very preposterous. It doesn't sound logical. In other words, it sounds ridiculous. It sounds foolish. But that is the fact. That's the nature of man. That is the nature of man without the full knowledge of Christ. Without the Holy Spirit's permanent indwelling. Without the seal that is the Spirit. Without regeneration, this is the truth. That we act foolishly. And and arguably this is something that the church must also deal with. That people would profess Christ, yet not serve. Yet deny a true biblical Christ, would deny the true calling nature of Christ as we're called to turn from sin. The very beginning of the sentence deals with such people. The very beginning of the sentence says, For this reason, we must pay much closer attention. So as we look at that, I want to emphasize the subject of that sentence. We. We must pay closer attention. And the reason is revealed as the verse progresses. But we'll begin here. The we being a specific people. A group who had no doubt from the inference of the text been under the sound of a false gospel. Or a watered down gospel or some other gospel than what had brought them to regeneration that had brought them to a saving faith in Christ. They had been under the influence of a strange reconciliation. Not the reconciliation in Christ's blood, but it was a reconciliation that rather was false and was in fact no reconciliation at all. Therefore, the epistle would serve as a reminder to the Hebrews. Keep in mind that the Bible is just as relevant today as it was then. Though it was written to a different people, the application is still alive and well and it still belongs to the church to apply the truths of Christ in these Scriptures. Here is a letter to those who would find themselves victim of Satan's sifting power. That he would attempt to overthrow the throne of God by drawing away those who belong to Christ, by trying to make a liar out of God to say that he could lose his own. So Satan sifts. He brings forth a watered-down version. He brings forth another Jesus Christ. He brings forth another gospel message that is more palatable to the flesh, that is more appealing to the desires of mankind. The Jews had a long history of tradition. They were by large a cultural religion and as well as having this natural desire to stray 
from God by way of their own foolish self-desire, there was this sin. There's idolatry. There's this self-righteousness. And we see it all throughout the synoptic gospels and all throughout even the book of John as Jesus himself preaches to set the record straight. In John 14, chapter 6, he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. This serves as a reminder because the people of God here in the epistle to the Hebrews were neglecting the salvation that had come to him by Jesus Christ. They sought to be justified and righteous by other means. They were being moved by another wind of doctrine. This too is part of the gospel. This is what makes the news about Jesus so good. That man is even being strayed from the gospel. It must mean that something is wanting to pull us away from the truth because the truth is so powerful that it would reconcile man to God. It's wonderful, really, that someone would try to deceive us because it tells us that God is faithful, that God is able to save by the person of Jesus Christ, and that someone would want to rob us from that salvation. This is good. This is the doctrine of total depravity, that man is incapable and man is unwilling to submit to the Lordship of Christ and express unwillingness to be saved. And still God is ever more sovereign, drawing men unto Himself and granting faith and knowledge of Him who has gone to the cross. Knowledge of He who is the Son of God. And this is not just any faith, but the Bible is very clear that it's a repentant faith. It's a faith granted by God that leads to repentance. That repentance leads to forgiveness. That leads to reconciliation. All happening simultaneously as we realize salvation that was accomplished on the cross over 2,000 years ago. This is faith, repentant faith in the only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. Not the Christ of any certain religion or any certain denomination, but the Christ of the Bible. I'm not ashamed to be a Baptist. But if someone asked me, I want to be a Biblicist. I want to be a Bible-believing Christian. Because anybody else can get it wrong. Anyone else can have a false Christ. But the Bible is the one true revelation of Jesus Christ, who He is and what He's done. If we believe that, we have the right Christ. So we have this repentant faith granted by God, a faith in Christ Jesus, a certain hope. And we say, well, you know, this is to the Hebrew people. How does it apply to us? And even we in this room have a sense of arrogance at times to say, but hey, I'm, I'm not a Hebrew. I'm not that kind of sinner. And when I say this, I don't mean to attack any certain person, but this is for all of us. We all do this. We all have an arrogance to include myself to say that we're not that kind of sinner like these Hebrew people neglecting the Christ that had saved them. And you're right. If you would come to that conclusion, we would be right to say we're not that kind of sinner. 
We aren't a bunch of dirty Hebrew sinners. We're instead the filthiest, most wretched Gentile sinners that God has ever known. That's you and I. It's not someone else. We're the filthiest. And you better believe that we're worse than the last generation. You better believe that your sin is more heinous than your Hebrew predecessors. And if you want to know why, open your Bibles. The Bible is the key to understanding this truth. Open the book that you carry once or twice a week because you're headed to church, quote unquote. We've even forgotten what the church is. The church isn't this building. This church is the people belonging to Christ. So open your Bibles. Not just on Sunday and Wednesday. But open it every day. Open this book that's sitting on your shelf. Praise God the Almighty that this Word isn't just applicable for the Hebrew people, but that it's applicable and true for not only the original recipients, but for the church that belongs to Jesus Christ, the church paid for by His blood shed upon the cross. Praise the Lord that in His infinite wisdom, this Word is applicable to the people in this room today. The filthiest sinners, I said, that God has ever seen. The same reprimand is required. The same warning is to be heeded as those of the Hebrews when they would receive this letter. The same truth is saving God's people. It's the truth of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. But we need to look more intently to the Word of God. This Word that we call the Bible. Because unlike the generations to which it was first made known as we see here in this epistle, we have the full revelation of God. The canon is now closed. Sealed in the blood and the work and the person of Jesus Christ as He has gone to the cross. Amen? That's why we're filthier sinners. We have the full revelation of Jesus Christ contained in these 66 books and we deny them every day. We let it build up dust. If you think that you're less of a sinner than someone else, you need to open this Word and listen to the words penned by Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 1. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. I am chief. Romans 5.12 Wherefore as by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin and so death passed upon all men for that all have sinned. And then Romans 5.8 But God commended His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners Christ died for us. Isn't that wonderful? And consider this passage, Luke 15.1. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near Him to listen to Him. The tax collectors and the sinners. Two groups. Really just one group. All sinners. And so I submit to you by the truths of Luke chapter 15 verse 1, if you have come today to hear the Word of the Lord and to hear the voice of 
of the Lord, by the power of His Holy Spirit. If you are coming to listening to the preaching of the Word of God, Luke 15 says you come because you're a sinner. You stand in need of the grace of God. The saving power of Jesus Christ. Then Galatians chapter 3 verse 22 says, But the Scripture has shut up everyone under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. We need to pick up these Bibles and not just dust them off, but so diligently search them that the dust has but no time to settle. Rather, that the calluses of our fingers and the tears of our eyes would be poured out and wear thin the pages that contain our Savior's great love. You know, the church, the bride of Christ, is commanded to hold its members accountable for sin. We're accountable to one another to look out that we don't fall into sin. But you know, we aren't instructed in the same manner to point out every flaw of our brethren. Matter of fact, we're to regard and guard against these things. But instead, we're to point out those sins that have fooled and blinded our beloved brothers and sisters. Proverbs 27, 17 says that iron sharpens iron and one man sharpens another. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1 and 2. Brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Then Matthew 18, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens, you've gained a brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others with you. That the charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. A sinner from Luke 15 who doesn't know the Christ. Then James chapter 5, verse 16, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. We're not talking about a physical healing, but a spiritual healing, a reconciling healing from God through Christ. So the idea is that the church is to hold one another accountable. Ephesians 4, therefore having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Unity in Christ. I've said it many times this way, that we aren't the sin police going around naming every sin, because if we're doing such, we would at the same time find ourselves to be unjust for not looking and not reflecting upon our equally heinous sin. But instead, we look for those blinded by habitual sin that they may find reconciliation with God through repentance and faith in Christ. For all other momentary failures of the flesh, all these other instances of sin, I believe is this reference here in Hebrews chapter 2 that points us to the Word of Christ and the things that we have heard in coming to salvation in Him. Here's the message. The church is to hold accountable those who have fallen into temptation, fallen into habitual sin. But here in the epistle to the Hebrews is a warning that we must pay close attention. How can we do it? 
by being in the Word of God. It's pointing us to Christ. It's pointing us to the preaching of the Word of God that puts on display the work that Christ has done on the cross. For those immediate and apparent sins that we're confronted with. We have this Word of God for correction. This is why we need to be daily partaking of the bread which is Christ. The living Word. His Word serves, as we know, as a reproof. In basic terms, when the Hebrew chapter 2 continues, it says we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. The call is to be found in the Word. The Word is offensive to sinners. The Word is offensive to me. The Word should be offensive to you. The Word is convicting of sinners. The command is to pay close attention. It's to read for such conviction over ourselves. Close attention to what we've heard. I think that the best earthly picture of this is found in the family. Family in so many ways represents the gospel of Jesus Christ encompassing both His headship and His authority. And when I thought about this particular verse, I look into the text of Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1, and the vigilance invoked by it, I see that the family unit serves as a wonderful illustration of God's discipline by His Word. And you may ask, how? When the penman demands that we pay close attention, he's saying, be corrected. Be disciplined by God's Word so that you won't be found in error but that you be found in the truth of Christ, just like the Bereans searched the Scriptures to be reminded of the Christ that was brought to them by the apostles. In simpler terms, it's like being careless and disobedient. And then your dad saying, go pick a switch. And when your dad said, go pick a switch, you didn't come back with old broken dead switch, did you? You better not. You know you didn't come back with this small dead one. In fact... You would only do this if you wanted to see the, the punishment severely multiplied. But I believe the text and the family shows a different picture of a father who is disciplining his children. And most certainly in this illustration, when he sends out to get a switch, you better come back with a green living switch, a green living branch. Why? Because... This is the one that bends but doesn't break. This is the one whose burden doesn't break you. But it reminds you that there's still work to be done. There's still obedience to be had. There's still submission to be brought forth. And it reminds you that Jesus Christ is an authority who is seated on the right hand of God the Father. That's the picture. This is the picture of Hebrews. God is saying, go get this switch, which is the Word. The switch is God's Word. It's His rod of correction. It's His loving instruction. It's His discipline. And every child who forgets His authority and His command, this switch will soon be a reminder. And that's why discipline is so beautiful. That's why we shouldn't be scared but have a healthy fear of God, but we shouldn't be scared of discipline. 
Sean said it this morning, God is chasing, chastening those whom he loves. That's why we look to the word. If we have a heavenly, Christocentric, Christ-centered perspective of discipline, we'll see how wonderful it is that God will not forsake his children. And then we remember, not only does his word serve as a correction, but for those who go to it daily to be fed, they're nourished upon the word. They go to it joyfully and humbly each day according to Galatians. It is now a sword. It's both an offensive and a defensive weapon. It's no longer just the arm of discipline, but it's a sword that is protecting its people, that is defending its people, that is serving as an offensive weapon to the wiles of the devil. It's a blessing for the humble and a curse for the proud. Pay much closer attention to what you've heard. The beautiful thing about what we've heard is that the Hebrew people had heard the word of God preached. Paul said, because we preach not ourselves, but they had heard of the living, crucified Christ who had risen and ascended, who sitteth on the right hand to ever make intercession. This is the truth who Christ is and what he's done. This word is beautiful. But the text doesn't end there. It says, for this reason we pay much closer attention to what we've heard so that we do not drift away. The Bible, if you'll notice, is loaded with nautical terms. I mean, after all, I don't think it's just simply ironic that the first disciples that were called were fishermen. They were familiar with terms like this. But consider this, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 21, Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the Master, prepared for every good work. Acts 9.15, But the Lord said unto him, Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel. Unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. And then the famous Romans 9.21. Hath not the potter the power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another in dishonor? And then 1 Thessalonians 4.4. 4, that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor. If a man therefore purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified and meet for the master's use and prepared for every good work. The truth is that men and women alike are weak vessels at the mercy of the winds and of the seas with no ability to overcome or overpower any obstacle unless there is one on board this vessel willing and able to calm the storms and still the seas. This is the message of Jesus Christ. This is the truth of salvation. This is the truth of being a recipient of God's Holy Spirit that at regeneration we've received the seal which is the Spirit and He has overtaken this weak vessel and He is now in command. This Jesus is the one whom I believe in. The one whom I trust in. 
But the text implies that if we don't know Him, if we aren't with Him, and if we aren't seeking to walk with Him daily, we'll drift away. These vessels will drift away. This is happening in America today. This is happening in the church today. The perversion of the gospel has been magnified at the hands of Western Christianity and is spreading around the earth abroad and it's causing some professing Christians to drift away. It tells us it's nothing new. It's nothing new under the sun, right? That the people of God will be sought after so that men may carry them away by false doctrine by false Christ, by something other than what they had heard that brought them to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Do you see the dangers of drifting? Really consider the term drifting away. I'm not sure, but I think that most of you have probably been out in a boat. And the thing about drifting is that sometimes, and most oftentimes, it happens and you never know it. You never realize it. Never realize you're drifting. Pretty soon you've ended up somewhere that you don't want to be. And most likely you've ended up doing something that you don't want to do. And you're soon overtaken by the current. And this drifting has snuck up on you. Just a little bit at a time. This is what not being in God's Word causes the Christian to do. To drift away. A little bit at a time. To be chiseled away. To take away that which should make us joyful and give us something that feeds the desire of the flesh than, re- than feeding rather the spiritual man. What do you do? Paul says in Romans chapter 7 beginning with verse 19, For the good that I would do, I do not, but the evil which I would not, that I do. Now if I do that, I would not. It is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me, for I delight in the law of God after the inward man. But I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. Paul's speaking about a drifting. That's why Christians never graduate from the gospel. There's nothing better to be had. Doctrine isn't more important than the message of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. It doesn't matter how many doctrinal things you can repeat or that you understand the truth is do you rest assured that Jesus Christ is the son of God who has paid the debt of sin due on your behalf do you believe that he is God in the flesh the wonderful thing about the reality that Christians may drift is that we have an anchor Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19 and 20. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus is the anchor. The anchor that 
is able to keep us from drifting. Jesus is the anchor and He's tied to the boat, which is this vessel with the seal of the Holy Spirit. A knot which cannot be undone. Attached by the lifeline, which is His unfailing Word that endures forever. The portion in Romans chapter 7 that we read ends with this. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. The result is that if Christ is the captain of your vessel, you shall truly reach a home that is on God's celestial shore. But if the vessel is left to mere flesh as her captain, if the church's captain be not both man and God in the person of Jesus Christ, so shall she certainly capsize under the weight of her sin, drifting broken and dead into the destruction and torments of everlasting hell. This is the message that the penman is writing. Be ye warned of hell. Be ye warned of separation from God. Be ye reminded that you need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ preached at every moment in every season. Pay close attention to what you have heard so that you do not drift away. For what you have heard is the anchor that has set you in Jesus Christ. It's the message that has saved you from drifting. Be grounded. Be rooted in Jesus Christ. The message in the epistle of the Hebrews in chapter 2, verse 1, is that every moment should be a moment devoted to Jesus Christ. Every thought should be a thought captive to Jesus Christ. Every action should be an action that is working on the information that we have that we know that Jesus is to be exalted and to be glorified above all names. The warning is that if we do not submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, if we're not constantly reminded, if we're not, in simpler terms, tied off to the anchor by our devotion and our obedience and our love for Christ. We're drifting toward eternal damnation. The message is Jesus Christ, all-sufficient, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-sovereign God. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Fathers, we come before you again, Lord, we thank you for the, the truth of your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that this morning, with the unbelievers who have heard your word, that it is like that which we have heard as believers, that it would be the message of Jesus Christ that has been coming to our ears and to our minds, Lord, changing and molding our hearts by the power of your Spirit that the old man be crucified with Christ, that we would trust in Him, Lord, and not ourselves. That we would recognize there is no righteousness apart from Christ. 
that we would recognize there is no hope apart from Christ, that the truths of separation from God, of eternal hell, would reign in our minds, Lord. The truth that our sin has placed us there. The truth that we deserve death for the heinous crimes we've committed against You. But Lord, You are gracious. You are merciful. You've sent Your Son. You've given the perfect spotless Lamb as an offering. An all-sufficient offering. Lord, but if You would just simply grant faith that we would come and submit to His Lordship. That we would have everlasting life. Not only will we have everlasting life, Lord, that's not the most important thing. The most important thing is that Jesus Christ be exalted. That we come here, Lord, to worship Your Son, Jesus Christ. To worship You, O God, for the wonderful things that You have done. Not the things that are temporal. Lord, not just simply those things that are uh, but a vapor. Not the provisions of this life, Lord. But the provisions that are eternal in Your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank You for Him. We thank You for Your long-suffering, O oh God. We thank You for the revelation in Jesus Christ on the cross. We love You. And ask that you would receive our worship this day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.